Well, welcome to all of you who are viewing online this morning. We are glad you can worship with us, even though we're a little distanced. I want to start with a reading from Psalm 111. It says, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. We sing this morning to a God who remains faithful, who is worthy of our praise, and who has shown us love that is really hard to fathom. So we're going to start this morning by singing How Vast the Love, and you should be able to follow along below with the lyrics. So let's sing this together. Let's sing Come Gaze. Come gaze upon your Savior, behold your great high priest, draw near in awe and wonder, his cross has spoken peace, come rest from sin and striving, find Doors of grace, in heart that turns to Jesus, is cleansed from every stain. Oh, how deep, how wide, how long! Oh, how vast the love of Jesus! Oh, how sure, how
more and everything will be made right. And even in the midst of this virus and all the fears of the world, uh, we have this hope that one day we will see the face of the Lord. And so we're going to continue now singing the song, When We See Your Face. lights grow dim though the word of God is trampled on by foolish men though the wicked never stumble and abound in every place we will all be humbled when we see The demons we've been fighting, those without and those within, will be underneath our feet to never rise again. All our sins will be behind us through the blood of Christ erased, and we'll taste your kindness when we see.
as your bride forever when we see Well, good morning, Kent City Baptist Church. Uh, we are glad that you are with us this morning uh, to worship alongside of us uh, out there uh, on the internet. And uh, we're just thankful that you're here with us this morning. If you'll bow your head and just pray with me just for a moment. Uh, Father, we are grateful to be here this morning. Uh, we're grateful to still be able to sing your praises. We're grateful for the fact, Lord, that you continue to sustain us even in such chaotic times as we're living in now. And most of all, Lord, we're thankful for you. We're thankful for what you did on the cross for us, which gives us hope, uh, not just uh, in the midst of what's going on in our lives and our world here, but beyond this world. Uh, Jesus, help us to be faithful to you. Um, help us to continue to follow you and be obedient in the little ways in our lives, Lord. Father, I pray that you would help our country right now. Father, I pray that you'd give um, wisdom to our leaders. Father, I pray that you'd help us here in our community to continue to be faithful to you, uh, to look after one another, to love one another, to serve one another well. And Father, we give you all the praise and all the glory that you are due. And we know, Lord, uh, that you will see us through um, this time in life. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I just have a couple announcements just to remind you of. Uh, we do have a benevolent fund. Uh, in our church here, and a ministry that uh, helps those who uh, need it and are in assistance, whether it's financial or um, if there's physical needs. Uh, you can come to the church anytime during the week from 12 to 2, and someone will be there um, if you have some sort of financial need. So um, it's a crazy time right now, and we want to make sure that you know uh, we are here for you as a church. Uh, and then uh, secondly, we just want to say thank you. Um, to those of you that have continued to be faithful in giving, um, this is a difficult time for all of us. And uh, finances can be tight, I'm sure, for some of you who have lost jobs. And uh, we just want to say thank you so much for continuing to support the church financially and continuing to be faithful in giving. And you can, do, you can continue to do that by giving online, or you can drop off your, um, your offering uh, at, the at the church office, uh, again, from 12 to 2, uh, anytime during the week. And also you can mail your offering in as well. So thank you for that. At this time, I want to read from the passage that Pastor Chris is going to preach on today. Uh, the passage is found in Hosea chapter 13. It'll be verses 1 through 6 and then 12 through 14 as well. When the tribe of Ephraim spoke, the people shook with fear, for that tribe was important in Israel. But the people of Ephraim sinned by worshiping Baal and thus sealed their destruction. Now they continue to sin by making silver idols, images shaped skillfully with human hands. Sacrifice to these, they cry, and kiss the calf idols. Verse three, verse 3, therefore they will disappear like the morning mist, like dew in the morning sun, like chaff blown by the wind, like smoke from a chimney. I have been the Lord your God ever since I brought you out of Egypt. You must acknowledge no God but me, for there is no other Savior. Verse 5, I took care of you in the wilderness, in that dry and thirsty land. But when you had eaten and were satisfied, you became proud and forgot me. Verses 12 and 14, Ephraim's guilt has been collected, and his sin has been stored up for punishment. 
Pain has come to the people like the pain of childbirth, but they are like a child who resists being born. The moment of the birth has arrived, but they stay in the womb. Should I ransom them from the grave? Should I redeem them from death? O death, bring on your terrors. O grave, bring on your plagues, for I will take pity on them. I'd like to begin with prayer. Will you bow with me? Father, I have a request from you. I pray um, that through this medium of television, computer, iPads, some people might be watching from phone, that your spirit would work through your word to revive those who are weary to encourage those who are scared to death. But God, I also pray that you would convict those who are complacent. Because God, honestly, this is a very um, convicting book. All through Hosea, God, we have heard stories that are terrifying. We have heard judgments raining down about how If we sow to the wind, we'll reap the whirlwind. But also last week we saw God who bends over to feed us, who leads us with cords of loving kindness. And God, we need you. We need your strength, which is also your holiness. But God, we need your compassion and your mercy to make it another day. So I'm just asking right now that your spirit would fill me, that your spirit would Um, convict those who hear and that he would make the Word of God vivid in technicolor, manifold pictures that you just can't ignore. We love you, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. This is our last study in the book of Hosea. It's the conclusion. I hope you've been um, enjoying this book. At the beginning when we started, it was kind of scary. But honestly, when you get to these last two chapters, I think you are going to see just how wonderful of a book it is. Before we start, I want to tell you a little story about myself. Believe it or not, I used to be quite a physical specimen. I know you can't tell that right now. look kind of old. I'm, I'm drying up like the dust, you know. Back in the summer of 1983, I was something, let me tell you. I just got elected football captain for the next year. And the other football captain, his name was J-Mo and I, we were um, able to get a team of five guys from our football team to go around town and to do landscaping work. They paid us pretty well. So we'd go to some grandma's houses and do uh, weeding. We would do a lot of ditch digging, planting of trees. But there was this one time... This uh, man about 80 years old, he asked us to come over to his house because he had a shed on the side of his house that was old. I mean old, about 40, 50 years old, and it was dilapidated, it was falling apart. He wanted us to come there and tear it down. So we had sledgehammers with these arms, you know, we were just going to knock it down. Chainsaws, chains to hook on the back of a truck. And so we started one by one. I, I had the chainsaw and I started cutting off the corner posts of the shed. 
My other friends would take sledgehammers and knock the sides. And I mean, for a good hour, we could not budge this shed. Underneath, there's these old stones that it was like the foundation. We'd pull those out and still, it's a little wobbly, but it wouldn't fall down. During this whole time, the man who owned the house, this 80-year-old man, was looking out the window. And he came out and he goes, fellas, I got to tell you something about the construction of this shed. It's balloon construction. If you go inside, you'll see the center post is holding everything else up. If you just pull out that post, that's all you got to do. Pull out that post. I guarantee you that whole shed will come tumbling down. So we got a chain, wrapped it around the bottom of that post, pulled it, put it to the ball of my friend's truck, and he slammed it into gear, He burnt some rubber, and sure enough, that post popped right out. When that post, that center post, popped right out, the whole building collapsed in a minute. I'm not kidding you. We're slamming on it for an hour and a half, nothing. One post out, it's down. That center post held everything up. Without it, nothing would have stayed. Today, we are going to talk about something. In our life of faith, that is the center post to everything. It's going to be found here in this last section of Hosea. But you're going to have to look close. And when we find it, you will see that all of your life, specifically your life of faith, is built on this center post. But it's going to take some time to get there and you have to be ready to study. So, here's how we're going to attack it. We're going to talk about chapters 13 and 14, the last two chapters. And then we are going to find that post. And then we're going to apply it to know how to move on from this point. This has been quite a study in the book of Hosea. If you remember, Hosea is the name of a prophet. He was told by God to go marry a woman named Gomer. Gomer turned out to be a prostitute. She had a couple kids out of wedlock. So she left Hosea, and God told Hosea to bring her back and love her again. This is a metaphor of the way God loves us. It's a metaphor of the way God loves Israel in the past, where they would turn to idols and run, commit spiritual infidelity, and he would pull them back. In the same way, in our flesh, we are, as the song said, I said it a hundred times, prone to wander. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, God. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We are prone to wander. But God, in his loving kindness and mercy, reels us back in. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So if you can open up, we're going to start with the ESV, but after a little while, we're going to go to the NLT. But if you go to chapter 13... We're going to look at 13 and 14, and I want to give you what I would call is just an overview of what's going on. I call it the hope curve. Chapter 13 and 14 is the hope curve. The curve that starts up here, goes down, and then is going to go up. Chapter 13 is the movement of ruin. Actually, we're going to, uh, we've been seeing this all through the book of Hosea, where here, Israel's in a good position because of their sin. They are, they are ruined, honestly. And then the second part, chapter 14, is going to be returning how Israel and how God's children return back to him. 
But right in the center of this curve is what I would call the central post, the main portion. And this, if this was not here, the curve wouldn't make sense. But because it's here, ruin can turn into return. Another word for return is repentance. So this is the hope curve. This is what we're going to talk about. So let's begin on this first part of the curve, which is chapter 13, and I'm going to call it the slope of ruin. If you can read that, that says ruin, and we are going to start up here. I'll be honest with you, if you have been paying attention to this series, this won't surprise you. If you know the salvation story in the New Testament, this slope of ruin won't surprise you. And if you're honest about your own heart, if you are honest about the way that you live your life, this slope of ruin it won't surprise you because that's who we are in the flesh. We begin, as Ephesians 1 and 2 says, dead in our trespasses and sins. You might not be able to see it, but there's a little skeleton guy up there. See him up there? He's right on the top. And this skeleton is who we are in the flesh. We're dead. We're dead. What does that mean? We are dead to God's Word. We're dead to God's Spirit. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And so, of course, this skeleton is a rebel. Look at verses 1 through 3, chapter 13. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel. So, the beginning of the story is Ephraim is a tribe of Israel and it was one of the leading tribes of Israel, and they were exalted. They were exalted by God. They were honored. However, look at the problem. He incurred guilt. Guilt was assigned to him through Baal. So who's Baal? Baal is an idol. And remember, the law says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So he rebelled to God's law and died. He rebelled to God's law and died. Dead men don't want God's will. Dead men don't like it. Verse 2, and because of that, they sin more and more. And verse 3 describes what the dead man is like. They shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes away early. The morning mist, it appears for a little bit, but then when the sun comes out, it vanishes away. It's dried up. They're like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor. When you, the threshing floor, they'd take grain and then chaff and they'd throw it up in the air. The heavy grain, the sustenance would fall to the ground, but the chaff would swirl away by the wind. It was worthless. That's the idea. And then the last metaphor he gives about what they're like is they're like smoke from a window that just fades away. So verses 1 through 3 describe the rebel to the law of God. The rebel doesn't like thou shalt nots from God. They think God is angry, mean, holding life back. And so they rebel, they trespass, they cross the line. So the idea here is here is the dead man's going to fall off the cliff. He trespasses. But if you notice, right underneath the trespass, in my little picture, there's this nice blue pool. See it right there? Water didn't deserve that. 
God's always ready with grace. Look at verse 4 through 7. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there's no Savior. God takes the title of Savior. He wants to save the dead man. And so it was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. God's the one that led Israel through the wilderness. God's the one that leads us through difficulties. Even though we deserve them, he's the one that still tries to save us. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they grazed, this is mean when they're brought into the promised land with milk, honey, green grass, when they grazed like fat cows, they became full. They were filled. And their heart was lifted up. And here's the saddest part of all. They forgot me. What's ironic about, what's ironic about the dead man is God can show them grace, but they still reject it. They reject grace. That's their nature. They don't want it. Because it says here, even in a land of plenty where they can graze, they forget God. I was thinking through this, and um, what is really interesting about this, this is, reminds me of a passage in Isaiah 26, 18. Take a look at Isaiah 26, 18. Actually, it's Isaiah 26, 10, but then we'll get to 18. Isaiah 26, 10 says, if favor is shown to the wicked, so favor is another word for grace, if favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. Grace to the, to the dead man means nothing. Which ultimately leads to, stay in 26, but if we go back to Hosea, it ultimately leads to death. So, rebellion against the law, rejection of grace results in death. Take a look at verse 12 through 13. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. So before in verse 1, he sinned. Now sin defines him. It's, he's bound in it. He's, he's characterized by it. Have you ever been there where there's, it's one thing to sin. It's one thing to lie, but it's another thing to be known by that sin. Are you known by sin, or do you just, you don't mean to, but you sin? Some people are known by sin. They actually enjoy it, and they like to identify in it. That's what's happened here to Ephraim. They're bound up. And so sin is kept in store. And then this very strange verse comes in there, verse 13. And you've got to follow this closely, because this will... Be reiterated in Isaiah 26. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. So here's what this means. So imagine a woman is ready to give birth. The pains of childbirth are coming, but the baby doesn't want to come out. It's a stillborn baby. Dead. Dead. No life. Go to Isaiah 26, 18. It's the same thing. This is the final result of someone caught in sin, of a dead man. Isaiah 26, 18. And this is, this is talking about Israel, but this is talking about every person dead in sin. We were pregnant, same idea. We wreathed, so there's birth pangs. But what did we give birth to? 
the wind. There's nothing of substance that comes from a life that's dead in sin. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. We can't save ourselves. We're, we're dead. And the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. It's kind of a sad story, honestly. Because they spurned grace, they rejected the law, there's nothing. There's nothing. And then if we go back to Hosea, we come to verse 14. And verse 14 is the center pole. But you have to read it closely. I'm calling it the center pole. Center post is that which holds everything else up and gives hope to every alive person. So what we've said so far is God is describing Israel and where they're at. He says they are dead because they've rebelled against his law. They created idols. Not only are they dead, but God tried to bring them through the wilderness, bless them, and then they forget God, so they reject him. And then they're typified, they're characterized by their sin, which leads them to death. They cannot, they cannot produce deliverance on their own. And then out of, out of nowhere comes verse 14. Verse 14 here in the ESV says, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? In the NIV, it, they, they write writes it like this, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Now the Hebrew is tricky on here. Um, this, is, this is tricky because there's a discussion whether this should be as ESV is a rhetorical question. Is this a rhetorical question? Shall I? As if it's kind of up in the air. Or is this a promise? I will ransom them from the grave. Which one is it? Rhetorical, where we're, sure, we're not sure what God's going to do, or is it a promise? And the key is in the second part of verse 14. Look at the second part of verse 14. I'm going to read it twice and see if it rings any bells with you. If you're a Bible scholar, it should ring a bell with you because it comes from one of the most powerful sections of Scripture. Here's what it says. I'll start at the beginning of verse 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol, or the grave? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Let me read that again. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Does that ring any bells? It doesn't? Oh, come with me then to the greatest New Testament chapter, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Hark, you need to hear this. 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to begin in 1 Corinthians 15, the very first verse, and in your Bible it should have what I would call is chapter headings. Watch what 1 Corinthians is all about. Verse 1, it's about the resurrection of Christ. Look at the chapter heading over verse 12, the resurrection of the dead. Look at the heading over verse 35, the resurrection body. And then look at the heading over verse 50, mystery and victory. Does this, any theme here in 1 Corinthians 15? Something about resurrection, right? Huh, well, let's start in verse 51. 
Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So the dead will be raised. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. The saying that is written. What saying that is written? Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, there it is, the saying. We just read this in Hosea. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul takes this verse from Hosea through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sees it as a sign of resurrection that this dead man who's in the grave won't stay there because God will ransom them. He will bring them to life. He'll give them new life. It is the center post of everything we believe. The dead, the dead are not done. Those who have sinned are not finished. Oh, somebody give me an amen to that. <laughs> I know I'm strange. I get you. I get you. I want you to look at the next part. Because the next part is now the dead man is risen and he returns up the curve. Resurrection up from the grave. When God begins to wake you up from your death, and pulls you from the grave, things are going to happen. But before we get to this point, you have got to come to the point that you admit that you died. Here's the problem. People don't like to get there. They don't like to admit they're dead. What does it mean to be dead? Here's what it means. It means that on my own, I have to come to the place where I realize there is nothing I can do, not only to save myself, but to earn favor with God, all of the striving to make myself look like a good person, all of the religion I do, this look righteous, it doesn't, it doesn't accomplish anything because I'm dead. And I have to be dead in order for God to work. Because as they say, crucifixion always precedes resurrection. That's just the facts. So here's the next thing is the return. And what I'm going to call these are the ABCs of new life. How do you know? How do you know you have new life? That's where chapter 14 comes in. A is acknowledging sin. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for, and now listen to the words, you have stumbled. You have fallen because of your iniquity, your sin. You take ownership. How do you, how do you know if God wants to give you resurrected life? He starts convicting you of sin and you own it. You start owning it. You start taking it. You are willing to acknowledge it. You recognize it's your fault. No more excuses. No more justification. No more blaming others. I once worked with this guy. 
who had every reason under the book why he was a sinner. I mean, this guy sinned like crazy, but he blamed, he blamed his buddy for seducing him into living a, a terrible life. He blamed the government. He blamed his boss for not paying him enough. And because he didn't pay him enough, it's my boss's fault that I sin and I go and drink and I'm, I'm an idiot. He blamed everybody but himself. How do you know when you are, you are now having the Spirit of God come upon you, you start owning things. You start taking it and admitting it. And you quit trying to justify and make excuses. Man, I tell you what. We live in a culture, everybody's a victim. It's never their fault. It's never their fault. The greatest day of my life is when I admitted everything's my fault. Finally, God could help me. Some people just won't admit it. But how do you know God's working on you? You'll take it and own it. But here's the problem. And here's, here's the problem for me even preaching to a camera or even preaching to a large auditorium and, and just being a preacher. I want, I want volume and razzle-dazzle to convince you what I'm saying is true. However, that's not what brings a, a dead man to life. There was a pastor named Erwin Lutzer. He was the pastor at Moody's Church in Chicago. He would teach preaching class at Moody Bible Institute. And here's what he would do to his students that wanted to study preaching. He'd put, pack them in a van, drive them to the nearest cemetery, and he would make every student pick a grave. And he would say, now for the next 15 minutes, I want you to preach your heart out. Give it everything you got. I want you to raise the dead. And the students are they're going, what? What do, you, what do you want us to do? I want you to give your best sermon. Preach loud. Give your best illustration. The one that rips at people's hearts and raises the dead. And the students are like, no, they're dead. And he said, exactly. That's what it's like to people you preach in the pews that are dead in their sins. Your tone, your eloquence won't raise the dead. There's only one thing that will raise the dead. And we find it in verse 2. Here's what he says. To the person who admits their sin, take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity except what is good and we will pay with bowls the vows of our, our lips. What words? What words do you take with you? Do you know what these words are? These words are Moses' words from the book of Exodus. Chapter 34, verse 9. In other words, how do you know the Spirit of God wants to raise you from the dead and give you a new life? Honestly, you start believing His Word. You start reading this. And it is like a double-edged sword. It starts piercing you. It starts revealing the thoughts and intentions of your heart. You know what Romans 10 says? Faith comes through hearing and hearing through this, the Word of God. These words are life and their power. You know what Romans 3, or 116 uh, says? I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. I, I love this illustration. The Gospel is a little tiny seed, like an acorn, and once I believe it and it plants in my heart, the Spirit of God will water it and will start to grow and it will start making me into an oak of righteousness. It's not the words of a preacher. It's not even the median that you preach from. Some people are like, oh, 
It's a TV, it's technology. No, if you believe the word, it can change your life. I honestly, I can't wait till we're all back here. I was listening to Jared and Callie singing. I, I'm, I'm telling you, I want to bust out of my, I want to I dance. But right now, all that matters, do you believe this as truth? Well, if you do, the most beautiful thing happens. Look at verse 3. Read it slow. It's incredible. Assyria shall not save us. That means they realize they can't go anywhere else anymore. They can't look for other saviors or nations to help them. We will not ride on horses. They're no longer trusting in their armies, trusting in their strength. We will say no more. Our God is the work of our hands. They're done with idolatry. They're done with all those other things. They're done trying everything else to give their life any meaning. They only want God. And because of that, and because of that, in you, God, the orphan finds mercy. A dead man is now a child of God. This is incredible. Do you remember in the book of Hosea? So when Hosea married Gomer, Gomer had some kids, and some of the names were really weird, really weird. One of the names was La'ami, not my children, not my children. And at the end of Hosea, God's saying, you know those orphans who are orphaned who weren't my children? Now they are. Now they are. Some of you feel orphaned. Honestly, you feel like, where is God? Where is he? Does he see me when I'm all alone in my house and I can't get out? Does he see me? Is this whole thing my fault? Is this America's fault? Because we do enjoy our sin. Let's not, let's not lie about that. But I will be honest with you. God has incredible mercy. He wants to make you his child. Take a look at John 1 really quick. John chapter 1. In verse 12 and 13. But to all who received him, all who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That still applies. God hasn't null and voided that verse. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You, you, a person is born again and made a child of God by receiving and believing in the Son, Jesus Christ. Have you? Have you? And then what happens is the ultimate hope is the rest of Hosea is when you reach the top. When you reach the top of this up here and you're a child, you start to find life. It's the greatest promise ever. And this life is called regeneration. Look what it says in verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. My anger is turned aside. I'll be like the dew of Israel. Remember in verse uh, 3, they were like the morning mist? Here, this is dew to Israel, like real water, which blossoms the lily. And it gives the tree ability to take root, like the trees of Lebanon, with the shoots spread out. And the beauty of Israel and God's people will start being, being like the olive and the fragrance like Lebanon. 
They shall return and be underneath my shadow. That means God will protect them because you're, you're His child. They'll flourish like the grain. And I love what 8 says, O Ephraim, what have, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. What this means, when you're a child, the Spirit of God comes upon you. The Spirit of God renews you like a caterpillar to a butterfly. It's called regeneration. You're not who you were. You're brand new. He heals you. And He brings fruit out of your life. What is a dead man? A dead man is wispy dead stuff. What is a child of God? A person like a tree planted by the springs of water. So the final thing is this. It's a final exhortation. It's verse 9, and it's beautiful how it sums it all up. Verse 9. It's appealing to whoever is wise. Let him understand these things. Whoever's discerning, let him know them. This is another way. You know how Jesus says this? He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. So God is appealing, making an appeal to our will. He's making an appeal to our intellect. He is inviting us, as it says, to walk in the Lord's ways because they're right. But if you want to be a transgressor, go ahead and keep stumbling. Keep sinning. Keep doing your own thing. But God is inviting you. He's inviting you. He's respecting your agency and your dignity to live right. Walk right. He wants to be your father and have you as his child. Jared, before you, before you sing, I have one little illustration. You don't mind? If I, I, was, I was thinking about it before I came. And you guys are very patient. Thank you. Have you ever been to an amusement park? Real quick. Go to an amusement park. You walk down the midway. Imagine you're at this amusement park. As you walk down the midway, to your left, there is a roller coaster, and it's called the Devil's Drop. Not the Demon Drop, the Devil's Drop. To your right, there is this roller coaster called the King's Crown. The line to the Devil's Drop is packed because it has lights and music, and it's obvious the hill is, it, it kisses the clouds, the first hill. Everybody's excited about it. But the line to the king's crown is kind of meager because it goes into this tunnel and it's dark in there and there's, nobody wants to go. All the cool people are on this side. That kind of the weird people want to go on that ride, you know? But you'll, you can only pay to go on one ride. That's all the money you have and that's your life. Now, if you pay to go on the devil's drop, you get in this train and it starts clicking right up. Click, 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 click. And you're above everybody waiting in line and look how cool I am. And you tell everybody in the train, we're going to hold our hands up the whole time, man. And everybody in the train says, go, 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 go. It's so cool, so much energy. Everybody's having a blast. But over here in the King's Crown, you got to take a single car and you're all alone. And the first thing that happens is you go in this dark, tunnel that drop there's no music there's no excitement it's really lonely but here's the problem you get to the devil's drop right when it gets to the very top 
this tunnel comes to the very bottom. But then all of a sudden they switch. This has this descent that never <laughs> stops. This one starts coming up into the light and it goes higher and higher and it comes out into this incredible part of the park nobody else knows about, only those who go on here, and it has everything. This one, though, it never stops descending. You know what it says in Philippians? Jesus, who was the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, and he made himself nothing, even taking the form of a servant and died on the death of a cross. And because of that, God will exalt him and raise him above every other name where every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You ride with Jesus, it's going to be hard. Truthfully, it's hard. It takes death. Die to yourself. Die to your sin. But I am telling you, it's worth it. You want to ride with Satan, the thrills, they're instant, but they don't last. I'm going to pray. God, I uh, thank you for I thank you for this church. I thank you that we still have the freedom to preach. I pray that somehow through technology, somehow through the glittering light of blue technology, the gospel lands on a heart that's broken. That somebody who's dead will believe this and come to life. I pray that the gospel will make sense. Thank you, God, for loving us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, at this time, we're going to close with one final song. It's the song, It Is Well With My Soul. And if you have turned from your sin and you have believed the gospel, you can sing the song with full assurance, knowing that it is well with your soul. Let's sing together. And when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever
Amen. At this time, as we close our service, I'll pray. But I want you to discuss with your families afterwards the ABCs. Have you acknowledged your sin to God? Have you agreed with him and acknowledged that reality that you are a dead sinner apart from him? Secondly, have you believed his word? Have you trusted the promises of the gospel that God does indeed save those who turn to him? Have you believed on Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Talk about that as a family and see where everyone is. And finally, if you have, rest assured that you are indeed a child of God. You're his son or you're his daughter because of the work that he has done for you. Discuss those things and I will pray to close our service. Lord, we, we thank you for who you are. We come before you and acknowledge to you that we are people who are riddled with sin. And apart from you, we are lost in our sins. We are dead in our trespasses. But we believe that Jesus came into the world to save not the righteous, not the people who professed that they were fine. But you, Jesus, came into the world to save sinners like us. We thank you for that promise. We thank you that that's why you came and that's what you accomplished as you gave up your life on the cross. We thank you. We also thank you for the hope of resurrection that all who have trusted in you, who are your sons and your daughters, will not stay in the grave, but they will rise again. We thank you for that. And finally, Lord, we ask that until the day when we see your face, until the day where you come and return and take us to be with you forever, that you will help us to be faithful. In the middle of whatever's going on in our lives, whether all is well and there's no issues or it's a time like this where we just wonder what, what you're doing and, and what the next weeks are going to look like. Help us to trust in you. Help us to remain faithful and help us to long for the day where we see your face. Lord, we do love you and it's because you have loved us first. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.